Welcome to Mission Life. This podcast features stories of people putting faith into action. My name is Jeff. Thank you for listening. The mass migration from Africa, Central Asia, and the Middle East has everyone talking. Everyone has an opinion. Some say America should close our borders to Syrian refugees. Others say it's our moral duty to welcome them here. Some fear conspiracy behind the whole migration and see it as an actual invasion of Europe. Others see masses of people fleeing war and seeking a safe place to live. Opinions abound and there is no shortage of links, videos, and articles by experts to pass around. But today, you will hear from someone who has seen the crisis firsthand. I, I do, looking at it, I realize it's not stopping, and we have an enormous task ahead of us as, as Christians, as Western nations, because this is not Greece's problem. This isn't just Europe's problem. It's the world's problem. That was the voice of Jeremy Holloman. He just returned from three weeks serving on the shores of Lesbos Island, Greece, which sees over 3,000 refugees land on its shores every day. The UN estimates that 379,000 refugees have landed on Lesbos since January. What you are about to hear is first-hand experience on this migration issue. Jeremy literally helped people out of rafts onto the shore. He looked eye to eye with children and moms. He spoke with dads and young men. He heard their stories and learned more about what's really going on. Such an experience is not really new to Jeremy. In previous years, he served as a missionary in Honduras. In 2010, he was recruited by Conscience International to head up relief operations in Haiti after the devastating earthquake there. Over the next five years, Jeremy oversaw the construction of nearly 200 houses in Haiti using an innovative earthquake-resistant design he created that literally built homes out of the rubble left behind by the quake. He has also done community development in Guatemala near the border of Mexico with the idea that improving the quality of life for people there would create incentive to stay rather than, than take the dangerous journey to the USA. I sat down with Jeremy at a local coffee shop to hear his story and what he learned while on the front lines of this refugee crisis. Now normally I would break a conversation this long up into separate episodes, but because of the interest in this topic, I'm just going to let it run. Jeremy is full of insights and information that will be helpful to you, no matter your opinion on this issue. So take time to listen. You may not agree with everything you hear. My friend Jeremy speaks his mind, so not everything you hear may reflect the opinions of his organization, Conscience International, but everything you hear will make you think. Now let's join the conversation. And it's not that the town is overrun with refugees, it's just that the beaches are just strewn with lifeboats and boat parts and things like that. And so you can't really go to the beach anywhere. So if you're going there on holiday, as the, the Dutch lady put it, you know, you, you just won't be able to enjoy your holiday because you'll see all this. And so they'll go, to, they'll go to the other Greek islands. I think there's six of them that are taking refugees. So they'll just go to one of the other Aegean Greek islands. And then they may like that and not come back because a lot of these people have been coming to Lesbos year after year. And if we lose them once, we don't know that we'll get them back when this is over. And I got news for us, this ain't ending. No. It's not ending this year. It's not ending next year. You know, it's 
people say that the winter could slow things up. What's your take on that? Um, I tend to agree to a little extent, but because the water will be much colder. But on the other hand, I think you've got about two million refugees in Turkey. They don't want to be in Turkey. The Turks don't want them. They treat, you hear the stories they tell about how they're treated by the Turks, the police especially. No one wants to spend the winter in Turkey. So I think it, it, it could potentially slow the flow, but I think that flow might be the flow coming to Turkey. So you might see a, a hiccup later down the road because no one wants to cross the mountains when it's freezing cold out. But if you're already there, it slowed down a little from what it was a couple of weeks ago. But that doesn't mean it won't pick back up again. We were we were concerned about what the Paris attacks were going to do. Like the next day, would there be a mad dash? And it was really calm. We had these Dutch guys working on our team, and you know, like, like the typical Dutch, they're tall. And I had them out on this rock, and they had binoculars, and they come running up. And there's 14 boats, and so 14 boats hit the shore within about 20 minutes of each other. So we got slammed. Um, the boats will run 50 to 60 people and a boat designed for 30 max and so we got hammered because it takes them a little while to walk up the hill they can walk between three and eight kilometers once they get to the shore depending on where they come in at and then uh, and so we had we probably we, we had about we went from z literally zero people inside to about 400 and 50 in maybe an hour's time and they were and I still had them queued up I would wait till we loaded a bus up and then I'd bring more in because I don't want to overcrowd the inside of the camp and if I keep them in the queue they, we can sing we can do whatever and we can kind of keep them happy uh, but once you let them in the area if it just gets too crowded I can't I can't make them leave you know and I don't want them to leave I want them to leave orderly with their tickets in hand that they go get on the bus so but I haven't really heard the number since then so I, you know who knows maybe they weren't paying the Greek Coast Guard enough money that morning and they didn't let the smugglers out until they kicked a little more money their way. So, but I know we had more multiple instances of people saying they were stopped on the Greek side by Greek military, which means the Coast Guard, and demanded money. So everyone would have to pony up more money and then they'd let them continue over to the Greek side of the strait. So, you know, there's a lot of money being made. Those boats are. You, this, you can pay up to two thousand dollars for a seat on those boats. So if you figure that math, you got sixty people at two thousand dollars a person. Who can afford that? These are refugees, right? The Syrians have the money. Their country hasn't been at war for that long. Uh, this wave of Syrians, you're going to see more waves coming. I think that it's going to get worse. But you see, we see a lot of Afghani's who don't have the money. I mean, we see some Afghan guys that come in here. They're in their late twenties, early thirties, and I bet they they've never known a time when Afghan, Afghanistan wasn't at war with somebody, either with Russia or internally with the Taliban or then, you know, with the coalition. So they've never really known a time of that war. I would say your primary right now that I saw was Afghans, Syrians, Iraqis, Iranis, and then we did see a decent bit from Nepal, uh, quite a few from Bangladesh, and some days brought one group more, and some days brought the other group more. Uh, but you were seeing, probably from Africa, the most predominant were Somalis. But, you know, we did, we had Gabon, Gambia, Ghana. We had some Moroccans came through, which surprised me that they didn't just take the boat to Italy, because I thought that was the most direct, what most of them are doing, but they came across and around. Um, so it's, but the word is out in Africa that this is a, we're told by the, the refugees, the word is out in Africa that you can make this journey and 
you have a chance, a decent chance of getting into Europe. So, and and what was their demographic? Mostly women and children, men. Syrians, you see a lot of Syrian families. You see a lot of Afghan families. You see some Iraqi families, some Iranian families. When you get much beyond down toward Africa, it was primarily single men. You do see a lot of single Afghanis, um, some single Syrians. Uh, Bangladesh tended to be, they would have some families, but they tended to be, and Nepalese tended to be more either couples or single guys. So, you know, it's hard to say, too, because, you know, their concept of family and ours, you know, is they'll say, we're all family, and there'll be 15 people. And so you don't know if they're really family, if they're traveling companions, or if they're extended family. But, you know, we, we try to separate out in the line. We give the cues to come in. We give preference to families. And then um, at night, if they have to stay, we don't like them staying. There's better places for them to stay. The locals don't want to spend a night, but sometimes they do. And we'll put the families in the tents and the single guys will be outside on the ground with mats and blankets. Uh, Did you learn much about the process? I mean, do these folks just say, we're going to leave and walk out the door? Or does somebody come by and say, we can help you go, we'll, we'll rain, make all the arrangements? Both. Okay. You have coyotes, for lack of a word. These are human smugglers, human traffickers. And they, if the Greek Coast Guard catches you at the motor, you will be arrested as a smuggler, uh, especially if they catch you taking a boat back, because typically these boats are left on the beach. So you're paying four or 5,000 for a Yamabisi or a Yahama or some other, and then like one of these big rubber Zodiac boats. Uh, and that's the typical mode of transportation. Um, we had a gentleman who was forced to drive one of these boats and they said, well, if you want your family, you'll have to come back, bring the boat back and you can get your family, which apparently is a tactic they're starting to consider. Well, he got picked up by the Greek Coast Guard trying to make the journey back. And we had some witnesses in the camp that uh, we had to deal with that had seen what happened. So there we were trying to get them to get the Greek police to let the man go free to, to go back. But I, you know, once they left the camp, I don't know what happened to that. But so they, they come in and they land. Um, Syrians are very direct about it. I have a video of a Syrian boat and they were just cheering and you know raising their hands they were so happy to land other nationalities tend to be a little more somber about it because they don't know what their status really is going to be uh, when they land there because they know they're not Syrians and you know we've got a box of maybe 500 passports that were dropped of other nationalities so they can try to claim to be Syrians now what they don't realize is when they get to the sorting camps they if you don't have proof that you're Syrian which is typically a passport um, then they're going to consider you another, and you're going to get a 30-day pass into Europe. And after that time, if you haven't been able to establish asylum, then you will be returned to Greece. And then at some nebulous point in the future, Greece could return you to wherever you come from if they can figure that out. If they can't, then that's where the process, no one seems to be able to have a good answer of what happens to you at that point. And you were working in a, a receiving center. Yeah, it, it, it an assembly point is what the UN calls it. Basically, they come into the beach. It's a rocky beach. Uh, there's a lot of volunteers at most parts of it that are accessible um, to help them kind of try to guide them in. Uh, oddly enough, there's a lot of competition between the groups down there. Yeah, I saw where one group was waving right and the other group was waving left. And I've seen them elbowing each other out of the way, you know, the, the, trying to get out to the boats first. And uh, it's kind of pointless. You see some fall injuries, especially amongst, we have several, 
we have doctors at the assembly point. There are some doctors on the beach also, and they've seen several just of the of the aid worker volunteers coming in because they twisted ankles and you know broke stuff because they're it's a rocky beach and you're running in rocks. And um, so they'll come in. They'll be helped off. There are the UN has uh, HCR, the UN United Nations High Commission on Refugees has set up some little shuttle buses, and they will take. Because the assembly point is up off the village. The, no, the, the village does not want anyone in the village. They don't want the big buses. The roads are too narrow. They couldn't fit anyway. So they'll, they'll ferry in, the infirm and families, you know, women and children, uh, sick people up. The men have to walk. It's about a two, probably two-kilometer walk up from the town. But it's a, you know, up, it's straight up a hill. You don't go downhill at any point. And, and it's amazing. I met a couple from Utah. They came for one week. They left their four kids at home. They'll get four days of work in, two days travel over, and one day travel back. They rented a nine-passenger minivan, and they were just giving people rides up and down, the, just to be servants up and down the mountain. They'll take them up to the camp, you know, the assembly point, and they'll go back down and pick up some more. So you've got a lot of official groups, and you just have a lot of volunteers that just show up, and you know they're just doing pitching in wherever they think they're needed, whether they're needed or not. They kind of come in and, and, and do their thing. So it, it can be a bit chaotic when the boats come in, and then they just start coming up the hill. And there's not a ton of Arabic or Farsi speakers. So usually every boat has someone that speaks English, but they just know the drill. They start walking. And sometimes they'll even walk past the camp, the assembly point, because we're not allowed to have a sign up because the Greeks won't let it be a permanent deal, so we can't put up a sign. And we'll have to holler, hey, over here. Or sometimes they'll ask, hey, is this the camp? And, you know, you wave them in. And so once they get to us, they queue up, we bring them in, they get water. It's just wonderfully cardboard flavored human high energy biscuits and some piece of fruit, an apple, banana. And then um, they get their bus ticket from us, which is just A, B, just the way we keep track of it. And then they get to sit down in a large enclosed area. And if they have, if they have wet clothes and it's, you know, dusk, it's nighttime, then we'll do our best to accommodate them to try to get them in dry clothes. Uh, the problem is the UN won't let their clothing be reused, so we have to throw away anything they take off. So we're constantly running out of men's stuff. But if it's daytime, I'm heartless. We just tell them to stay in the sunlight and to dry off. You won't be here that long anyway. And so then as, as buses pull in, we'll call, you know, bus number A, you know, letter B, letter C. And we walk around for the ones who don't understand English. And then out they go out the back into a bus and they go to another camp about 16 kilometers away called, Ma it's at the town of, just the other side of a town called Mantamados. It's run by uh, Doctors Without Borders. Uh, MSF, the French, it's the actual French version of it, um, and Medicines Sans Frontiers, however you say it. And uh, there they're sorted. Syrian families go to a camp outside of Mytilene, the capital city of the island of Lesbos, called Karatepe. Single Syrian males and everyone else goes to the other camp, which is much larger, called Moria, which is also on the outskirts of Mytilene. And then their process there. Um, Syrians who can prove they're Syrian, they receive, I've heard six months and I've heard two years, uh, refugee asylum visas, um, and they can be extended if the war's not over. Um, everyone else gets a 30-day visa, and this is according to, this is where the what's called the Dublin Convention comes in. Basically, if you reach European shores and you ask for asylum, you, you, you're guaranteed a 30-day pass and then you can try to in that 30 days try to set up asylum at any any point in the European Union um, and that's what's causing the problem that's why all these non-Syrians non-refugees are coming in 
because they know they can get that. And, and does that apply to any country? So they're getting this two-year, six-month, two-year visa. It's the Syrians. They can go to any EU nation. Um, and then, uh, and you can also with the thirty-day one, but you know that's you're not going to you're not going to establish yourself as the general consensus. You're not going to establish yourself in Europe in thirty days. And most people won't even be able to start the process, um, especially now. As you know, when I was there, uh, Sweden tightened their border controls. France has certainly stepped it up there. Uh, you already had the Balkan nations were, were stopping it, um, so it's, the route is getting smaller and smaller. Germany is still the honey. It's the it's the Everybody's going to Germany first because Germany is the gateway to like the Low Countries, you know, right in that area there, and, and then to the Scandinavian countries. But you know, so Germany ever closes the borders, this thing's going to be disastrous for Italy and you know the countries they can immediately get to from Greece, which aren't that many. And so, and that's the process. That's that's how it happens. Describe the center that you worked at. Um, it's got like a 20-foot tall fence around it. Have a, a big white tent that'll hold a couple hundred people. We've got another smaller green tent that'll hold maybe, you know, a hundred and two of those. And um, it's got a looks like a little portable at at a school. And they're primarily plastic, and one for the medical, which is provided by the Women's Waha Women's. Alliance, something, uh, health alliance, um, and they, they staff it with doctors, not 24, probably 12 hours a day, but they're on call because they, they staff all the areas around there. And then there's a clothing one, and then there's another one where Samaritan's Purse is handing out blankets and uh, hygiene kits. And then there's another one uh, where we have the kitchen where we make hot tea and we do serve hot meals at dinner and breakfast if people are in a camp. And then there's like a tent there in between that, that's kind of in a square where they can sit in the daytime if, to wait on all their family to get there because we don't want to give bus tickets so the whole family gets there. Otherwise, you have them in two different buses and it just creates all kinds of havoc and the system kind of backs up. So we like we like orderly. Then once you get inside, once you get your tickets, then the other area has the big white tent and a smaller green tent and then some area just to walk around in. And then there's water closets, outhouse that just... Right now they're just construction toilets in the back. And then uh, Samaritan's Purse has built some hand washing stations and they're, they're getting some like Turkish style toilets built. But it's just real slow because it, we, our power is off a generator because the locals don't want it to be permanent so they don't, don't let us tap into the power supply, the power grid because that would mean permanent. So they, at first they, they, they fought to get one tent and now they've gotten a lot more. So they've been very re responsive to the locals' concerns. And that's helping, and I think they're you know enough of the locals realize that if the UN assembly point wasn't here, these people would still come. Now they're just going to wander all over, and it, there's some order to it now. And you know when when we were not busy in the mornings, if we had any time, I would send a couple of volunteers with trash bags, and they would walk all the way down to the village, fill them up, and we'd come back and pick them up, and I'd send them all the way up the road to where it hits the main highway, you know, a couple of kilometers that way, so that we keep the place clean from all the, the debris and one day a lady was out feeding her sheep or goats or whatever and she got so excited that they were, we had volunteers out cleaning that they uh she just jumped right in with them <laughs> she was like, oh, really? she was super happy so she jumped in with them and they're filling up the trash bags and we just drive down and pick them up bring them back to the dumpsters
As you can imagine, there are a lot of organizations working on this refugee crisis. The particular refugee center that Jeremy worked in was started by the UN, but now is overseen by Euro Relief and is operated by Hellenic Ministries and Conscience International partners with them. Jeremy goes on to explain, though, what makes this particular center unique. And it's the only Christian-run camp there, and it, you can tell the difference. Every other camp there is just horrible. Everyone, journalists, the UN, volunteers from at these other camps would come by and look at ours and like, I can't believe that this is here because you should see what we're working in. And it's because we have a bunch of Christian folks and we smile, we're always calm, there's never any problems, we don't, there's no rioting, we're just very calm. It, Christ comes through and we know this is our shot. We know this is our shot with these people. And for many of them, this is the first safe harbor they've had in years for some of them. And so we want to make sure that we, we extend that, that, that welcome hand and shake their hand um, and your, smile. What's your capacity? Uh, we try to keep it to 400 on the inside in case they have to spend the night because that would be hard to get more than that sleeping. But it's gone to five. And then I'll just keep the queue. Uh, full outside because that'll hold another 100 or 200 uh, maybe 200 more in the queues uh, but buses run until 11 at night so the majority of the boats are coming across during the daytime so the, the traffic slows down a lot at night so usually by the time dark hits that's probably your, your, your the biggest wave seems to hit between 3 and 6 and then it kind of settles down and so the buses can get caught up and a lot of times they'll get everybody out of the camp by then and sometimes we'll have you know one maybe 200 people sleeping you know one night we had nobody and i showed up for the day shift and i knew that they didn't i knew at the shift change that night at 11 30 the prior night that the camp was empty and we got there and 30 people had shown up about three in the morning soaking wet but the boat had capsized on the way in and uh don't know about all of them because there was more than that on a boat but 30 of them made made their way to us and so they got they'd given them dry clothes and fed them breakfast and tea and so we just put them on a bus as soon as we got a bus. The buses came in, I guess, about 8.30. So we started loading them up so they could go on. So if the boat is left on shore, the coyotes just just filter in with the refuge, or do they go back to try to get more? A lot of times the coyotes don't come. They make someone drive the boat. They show them. I mean, an outboard is a pretty simple thing. You turn the handle, and it goes faster, and you turn, you know, and you point the handle one way or the other, and it... it how, far, how far are they going with these boats? It's about four miles. Because if you look at these islands, you would think they were Turkish islands, but they are, they are not. They are Greek islands, but they're very close. There's five or six of them that, that are taking refugees right now, but Lesbos has probably taken the brunt of it. What's their response when they, they see, they get the help at the receiving center? What, what kind of response have you seen? I, I tell you, you know, responses vary, but by and large, they thank you, uh, or, or the Arabic or Farsi version of it. You know, handshakes, the, the, the you know the, the salam and the, and the hand. Up. I mean, they're they're by and large very appreciative people. Um, it, it's you know obviously with a language barrier, I I can't talk to everybody, but I try to make it a point to speak to everyone when they're walking through, uh, as the, the you know the whole all the volunteers over there. Some speak English, and sometimes if Yanni or one of the translators was around, uh, we could have deeper conversations with them. But by and large, they're very appreciative that people are doing it. Um, they don't understand because they, they understand. I'll tell you a story. 
and I, I don't remember her name, and most Syrians didn't want you to use their names anyway because they do know that ISIS has people infiltrating the camps, going along with it, keeping tabs on who's doing what, and sending it back to, to Syria. So they're fear for their families that are, that are remaining in Syria. So a lot of them wouldn't give you their name. But this lady had several children with her, and I think she was part of a little bit larger group, but she's, ISIS came to town and killed her village and her house blew up in front of her eyes and she had family in it. I don't know who or how many because she didn't speak much English and yeah, the Arabic translator was not totally fluent, but she left the village with whoever else that day and has never been back and she started the long journey over with no preparation, with no money uh, to get. So she's been in contact with some of her family, but I don't know, you know I believe her husband's dead. Um, some of her older children are dead. So, yeah, so she showed up in Turkey, and from, from Turkey, you know, she, she made her way, she made her way to Greece, and so I, and she was very appreciative, and she was very thankful to help whoever I was giving her, um, and I've had people thank me, uh, I had one guy, I didn't think he spoke any English, and he, when I came to tell him that it's time for your bus, he gave me this, this massive bear hug. I was speaking with, uh, he was Syrian, and I was speaking with the guy that was kind of the head of the family, but this guy's a little older, and then he had a daughter, who again, I'm guessing is in her 20s. It's hard to tell with the, with the headgear and everything, sometimes how old they are, but she spoke a decent bit of English. And they just had a lot of questions, and I spent some time with him, and he's like, you've been so kind, you know, why are you so kind to us, thank you, you know. Um, but coming through Turkey, this lady, you know, she left her home in Syria, she's shown no kindness in Turkey. They're beaten, they're stabbed, you know, they're pushed at, they're robbed, I mean, it's tough. And so when they get to the beach, they're kind of in a, in a daze and they, they come up and then people are just nice to them and they don't get it. And so when we love on these people, they, they can't help but show a reaction because that is not something they expect from strangers. Nothing in their prior life has prepared them for people that they have no idea who they are, even speak their language, to reach out and give them a big hand. We'll carry bags for them, you know, we, we do everything that we can to make them feel loved and wanted and, and welcomed. And that's, they have to be grateful for that. Most of them, they've just, they've never seen it before. Some of them don't even know how to process it. You know, this one guy was saying, I just don't understand why you would all be so kind. You know, he's, he's never, strangers just don't do that, I guess. And so, yeah, by and large, they are very grateful. You have some, usually just the single guys sometimes will be a little bit more entitled. But, but by and large, even those guys are pretty thankful. And a lot of them will, you know, I can stand in the line and that, you know, I'll stand between where they come in to get their tick with, and they get the snacks and all and the water and then over here where they go to get the tickets for the bus and I'll just be standing there sometimes just to kind of make sure everybody goes the right direction. And they'll just, there'll be 15 guys come, just, everyone will shake my hand, thank you, thank you, thank you, shukra, or, you know, shukra, thank you, salam, and you know, it's just, so by and large, very appreciative. How many volunteers? Uh, at our site, we probably had 60 split over the three shifts. Um, all countries? Yeah, well, let's see. Uh, the ship that I was primarily working with, we had we had the Dutch, we had Swiss Michael. So you get people from with multiple names, you know, multiple people with the same name, and so you tend to go to which country they're from. But it didn't work with David because they were both Swedish. We had blonde David and bearded David. So we had Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, um, Holland, uh, Chile, Costa Rica, the U.S., the U.K., and South Africa. And I'm sure I'm leaving out a country, but that was... And then the doctors that are working with Waha, 
they tended to be Balkan. So the, the Drago was Serbian. The, the nurse, what's her name, was Serbian. We had a Syrian doctor that served through Waha that had been in France for France for 20 or 30 years. So she goes, I feel French. And I'm like, well, you need to be here showing these people. They can adapt. They don't, you know, they can come and they can become French. They don't have to, or German or whatever. They, um, so yeah, we had people from all over the world, primarily more Europeans, but uh, we were starting to get some teams through Adventures and Missions, and those are primarily uh, U.S. Uh, by and large, those are U.S. constituents. They don't, they're not, they're not sending out a ton of European teams. But YWAM and OM, uh, they're they're primarily. You'd, if you got them from the U.S., it's because they're based like in Biarritz or they're based in Europe or. Australia. Uh, we had oh, we had. Let me not forget um, the Kiwi Matt. Um, he got some great guy. He was the one who gave me the idea to do art with the kids. Uh, ran that bus line like a boss too, and so there's great volunteers over there. But it's a it's a global response right now. It's not just Greeks. It's you know it's everybody currently. And you just kind of filled in where needed, or did you have a specific role? I was a coordinator for the shift. It's it is a great group of volunteers but it's a young group of volunteers. Uh, and in the culture of the people that, that we're bringing over, I guess, the, you know, the refugees, they, they tend to respect the gray hair more than, than, the, uh, than the young guys. And so that helped in the, a few tenser moments that I was able to just kind of calm things. But they, they asked specifically, could we do some, some coordination uh, in management and, and point them in the right direction in some ways? Because this camp didn't exist, this assembly point didn't exist a month ago basically and so they were what we were going to go do was something entirely different and then the UN asked them to head this and they said yes and then but they had no experience heading it <laughs> so they were it was trial by fire and so we, we were able to come in and draw on some experience and and, and help them out with organization and, and just train in some of their their people and their some of their on-site leaders your wife mentioned a lighthouse. Well, there's a lighthouse, and it's really rocky all the way around it. You almost can't get up on the left. You can get up on the right, but it's not easy. And so that's what we were originally going to do was man the lighthouse because that's what Euro Relief had been assigned that stretch of coast. But since they got the camp, it really took their focus off that. So several nights, I would go down, either me and Kenny, who Phillips uh, down from Florida, who travels with Conscience some. We went a couple nights, and then we took the Dutch with us another night. Um, we'd bring water, those, uh, those foil blankets, uh, some high fruit, some high energy stuff. And we never really had a boat come in because they're kind of slowing down a little bit. But the, the smugglers at first would say, go to the light. Because they, they'd come across at night, and it's dangerous. There's no, the shore's not lit up in a lot of places. So, but the lighthouse is there. It's just a beacon. It's a pulse light. It's not one of, you know, just light pulses on and off. And it's an easy target. But if you land on the left side, you could kill yourself trying to get up. So the last night we went, we met a group of guys coming back. Uh, they'd been walking for about 30 minutes, and we were able to give them water. They were seriously dehydrated because they landed way to the left, and the Coast Guard had to rescue the women and children, but they couldn't take the men, so the men had to walk. And it's about a, for a man in shape, it's about a two-hour walk to the pavement, and then probably another 45-minute walk to our camp or an hour-and-a-half walk to the next center down where they get sorted. Um, so it's a long walk, and so we were. Then they'd been out there for several hours, and there was a couple of volunteer group uh, people with them that had had to, had to climb down that cliff and help them find their way up. So we were able to give them water and some fruit and all. And they were very appreciative of that. But the, 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 at night, the boats, 
they've slowed down a little bit right now, and we we're not no one we're not really sure why. If we're seeing a well, one of the reasons we think that we we hear that there's another factory to make these boats is opening up because the boats those rubber boats are just sold out. They don't bring them back usually. They may, they just get to the shore Greek shore and they stay there. So part of it is we think they're having problems with the boats. You know, we even saw that they had been predominantly black, and then during our couple of weeks there, they shifted to gray. So we think the other factory that we've been hearing is maybe now back online. So somebody in China is making a lot of money off this. So what do you do with the stuff that's left behind? It just gets left on the beach. I mean, I, I can't. I, I've got pictures of me standing next to a six-foot-tall pile of life preservers, which, by the way, go for 125 euros in Turkey, and you have to have one to get on the boat. So you'll pay between 800 and 2,000 dollars for your seat on a boat and you pay $125 for a life jacket. Alpen is not stuffed with grass and other th- cardboard. But they're, they're literally at that, I, I'm not even sure how I'd count them, but just standing at the lighthouse, just looking to one side of it, if there's not 10,000 life jackets there, there's not one. And But when you go to clear them, you know, it's an issue because you find, body, you find bodies. Inevitably, people die on the journey and they just stole them and cover them up with, with, uh, whatever's on the shore. They don't take them back and people are scared to take them with them. They're afraid, you know, they'll be arrested. But, you know, we were buying hardware and right across the street in a town called Petra, uh, a three-year-old had washed up, three-year-old boy had washed up from a capsizing earlier the day, I think late the night before. Um, so these boats are overloaded and if the sea gets rough and they, they capsize, a lot of these folks have, you know, they've never swam before. And if you don't have a quality life jacket on, that could be it. And uh, They'll send these old rickety wooden boats over, and those are especially prone to capsizing. Uh, the Zodiacs are a little bit more stable because they're low to the ground. They got the big inflatable tube on both sides. But when they use these old wooden boats, you know they're like a V hull and it's kind of rounded, and those are much more susceptible to capsizing. So who's launching them from Turkey? Smugglers. The Turkish government has to be complicit in it because this is a 14 boats at an average of a cost of $100,000 a boat. That was $1.4 million in coming at us in a wave the other day. And that's just our little section of paradise over there. So the, the Turkish government at some point is complicit in this. Are the, is the Greek government starting to bicker a little bit over this with Turkish? What's their relation? Here's the problem. The Greek government owes $300 billion to Europe. The Greek government does whatever the EU tells it to do. And right now the EU is telling it to play nice, so the Greek government is playing nice. One of the first days out there, we had a slow day because um, Cyprus, the prime minister, was out on the island. Uh, as, uh, but also, the EU president was there, and one of the Greek locals was like, "Yeah, he's got Cyprus on a leash, you know, showing him off that this is what happens when you buck the EU." So a lot of the Greeks feel like if they didn't have this financial crisis, they would not be in this position. They they'd be they they'd have much better terms to to talk with the EU and, and Turkey and, and to turn back some of these immigrants. But right now they're having to do. They, these, you know, I don't know that this is true, but this is what the word is. You know, when you talk to a lot of locals, they feel like the economic crisis is, 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 has caused all this. But they, they, because they're so beholden to Europe, they really can't. Because they just tried to stand up to Europe when Cyprus was elected, and that pretty much got squashed. And now they have worse terms than they had before. So they know they can't stand up on this. They, have, they feel like they have to do. And this is what just average Greeks... You know, the, the Greeks have been, they've been troopers because before the UN and everybody got here, like the guy at the hotel that we were staying at, Orpheus, uh, I don't even know they ever caught his name. A nice guy, 
I respect them a lot. He was basically giving people food because the refugees would just walk right through town. There were no, they were just trying to figure out how to get to Mithilini. And that's a, that's a two, three day walk to Mithilini. And so he would give them food, clothes, whatever. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of people were. But when you're talking about an island who thrives on tourism, and tourism is dying right now because of this, there's not, there's not much help left to give. So had, had these volunteers from around the world shown up, not shown up, it would have, it, it could be a very bad state there. So, so in one hand, the, the Greeks are very sympathetic. On the other hand, you know, I'm not in my backyard. You know, they've dealt with it so long, and it is. There's just trash everywhere. Everywhere. And I'm not saying part of it's not Greek trash, but when you see life preservers and the foil blankets and the UN biscuit wrappers and the bottled water stuff, you know, we know where that's coming from. You know, on the beach, they come off the beach and they throw them down. The UN's even trying to clean beaches because they've talked to folks about why you decide to land, where you decide to land. And one of the key factors is if you see light and you're Syrian, you go there because you expect to be welcome because you're a refugee and that's what this is set up for. Uh, you don't go there if you're coming in from Somalia. Uh, the other factor is um, life jackets. There's a pile of life jackets on the beach. You assume this is a safe place to land, and it may or may not be. So they're trying to clean up life jackets on dangerous beaches and leave them out on safe beaches and maybe put some lights around on dangerous beaches at night to try to drive people away. But then if the Syrians come in, so that's they're, 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 not real, they're kind of torn on the light plan, but they're definitely trying to clean up the dangerous areas and the beaches might be fine for sunbathing and for swimming, but they just they'll have a lot of rocks out. And if you don't know they're there, you can capsize over. You know, you hit them, boom, your boat goes over, um, that kind of thing. So, is there concern over the Syrians like there is in the states about ISIS infiltrating and letting Syrians in? There's not really. How do I put this politely? There's not anything worth blowing up in Greece. And the Greeks will say the Greeks kind of agree with that. You you don't you don't make a statement by blowing up something in Greece. You, 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 if you're going to make a statement, you do it in the heart of Europe, which is Paris, you do it in the wallet of Europe, which is, London, which is Germany, or you do it in the head of Europe, which is the UK. You don't do it here. So I felt perfectly safe, and, they, and the Greeks do too. And we, I saw guys, they got the cut. You don't know what they are, but they've been soldiers. Everybody in this conflict has been a soldier at some point. Are they still? You don't know, but you see them, so you know they're coming through. The Syrians know they're there. Um, but they're not causing problems here. The ultimate goal is Europe, or to at least, you know, keep 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 the Syrians that are fighting, that are causing the fleeing. They want to know. They don't want people leaving. Is what we're told. We've had families. Uh, it was a French camera crew doing a like a fundraising documentary for Canadians, and you know they had a Syrian lady talk to them a long time, but refused to give her name or, or be allowed to be on TV. She says, "We see them. We know they're here." We know that they have people coming through this that they are letting the guys back home know who's, who they're seeing and what they're doing because they don't want people talking. They don't want people cooperating with the Western authorities. So and that will happen, and that will be, once the West really gets on the ball with that, they will be able to use some of this Syrian intel that's coming out now to more effectively target their strikes to get a better idea of what the, the command structure is. And they don't want that. And so when the French attacks happened, a lot of the Syrians said, we think this is, they're trying to keep us out. They're trying to get the border shut so that we can't go into Europe to keep us quiet. So ISIS actually doesn't want the refugee situation? No, not, not, not according to the Syrians. And, you know, and, I, and I know some of them might have a dog in the hunt, so to speak, but Syrian after Syrian says that, and a lot of the Europeans and the UN, we kind of all felt that way. It was kind of a general consensus that why do this now? 
you know, why, what, what, why now? And, and you know, the, the, the main target is they, they want to close the border some. Some have theorized that this is a coordinated effort to basically take over the West uh, by, infl- by flooding it with refugees, Muslim refugees. I can't say that it is. I can't say that it isn't. It makes some sense one way. It doesn't make some sense another way. There's easier ways to flood the West with Muslim, Muslim, Muslim refugees. Um, I will say that I did not speak to one Syrian family that did not want to go back home. They want the war to end. They expect the war to end, and they're going home. Um, it's, why? It's my country. Why? It's my country. You know, we love Syria. It's my country. We want to help rebuild to a man. Uh, some of the Afghans that have known war their entire life, they, they're through with it. They're done. They don't think it's ever going to end, and they just want to move someplace where they can put their kids in school, where they can get a job. Um, so, I, But it did. It, whether it's coordinated or not, it is going to present a problem for France. One of the, maybe the French prime minister, one of them said that this could be the end of the European Union. This could be what breaks it up. Um, so whether it is or not, I can't say, but it is a fantastic opportunity for the West to reach these people, to, to bring the light of Christ to these people, to bring Western principles to these people. And then when they go home, now what do you have? You've got a group that's, that's been exposed to Christianity. Some, a lot of them will become Christians if it's handled properly. A lot of them will, be, will see the Western ideals of democracy, of, uh, of science, of arts, of literature that is just totally stifled even before this in Syria. They will go home and now you have game changers there. So whether it's coordinated or not, you know, I got to be honest that it would take a lot to coordinate this. And I don't know that, I don't know that the United States government with all its resources could coordinate this. So I will say there's probably some coordination going on within some groups to take advantage of the situation. But to have coordinated the situation, I don't, that that's stretching it a little bit I and mean, i think that's no so i'm gonna start a war in syria and then they're all going to go to turkey and take boats to greece i i, I just think that's and stretching of, it a bit some have wondered why they haven't gone to other muslim countries now i know they have gone to lebanon and some other some others but primarily to uh, turkey they, and well Europe. because the arabic countries primarily won't take them they have closed their borders so they, they are not accepting them and again this goes back to some of this is related to these are the wrong kind of Muslims to go to Saudi Arabia or the wrong kind of Muslims to go here, there, and or, you know. So I do think that part of the long-term solution is, other than stopping the wars, which is the only conclusion, is going to be pressuring some of the Arab nations to bring them in, to take them in. Because um, Europe's not going to be able to handle this well. And in the U.S., we're so far away uh, that I think the best thing we're going to be able to do is, is pressure some of these other folks these other nations to accept more people. Did you hear them talk about the U.S., any of the refugees? No, not really. They primarily, they're coming to go to Europe, primarily Germany. So most of them want to go to Germany. Um, they'd have little maps and, like, I guess that the U.N. puts out, or I, I don't know, maybe this, I, I heard you can actually reserve boat spaces online with the smugglers. There's apps for that. that. More than one person told me that. Totally believe it. But they'd have these little booklets and they'd have the map and then the countries in the gray were like the Balkans and the countries were in France and some other where they're just not easy to get in and then the green ones were the ones that you want to go to. Well, and just because you get permission to be in the in the EU, you have to pay your way. There's no free boat ride back from Lesbos. You take a ferry to Athens, but you pay for it. And then when you get to Athens, everyone wants to go straight up to Thessaloniki, 
but they have to pay for the bus so, or the train. So the refugees you're saying had money, and so who's left behind in Syria? Who's left that's behind? The, that's that's the thing. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the Afghanis, because we worked with, we spent uh, an evening with Hellenic Ministries. They have a feeding ministry in Athens. It was primarily Afghanis there, some Iranians and a few Syrians. And the Syrians, by and large, they get there and they move right on. A lot of times the Afghanis will have to wait for Western Union payments to come in from other places. Um, but, you know, and that was one thing I said, this is a great opportunity. Hellenic Ministries, are, they're seeing Muslims who've, who've, who've heard of Christ, but have had, had a distorted view coming to Christ through these encounters they have at these meals because they have so many converted Muslims working with them and said some sure some just want to debate they want to argue why the Quran is right but the vast majority of them are interested so they have these downloadable tracks and Bibles and Bible studies in Arabic in Farsi they can put it on their phone no one knows what they're reading and they said they get tremendous response to that Um, and so there's kind of a like one guy, he's Iranian, and he talks about the freedom he's found there. And he stuck, he has stuck around in Athens, and he's working with these folks. And uh, huge opportunity, you know. How how much money do we spend equipping and trying to figure out strategies to get Western missionaries in the Muslim world? And here we have five hundred thousand of them coming over this year, whatever that number is. Three hundred eighty thousand come to Lesbos. Yeah. Okay. coming to us. How can we drop that ball? We can't. You know, the churches have got to get more organized. They got to stop arguing, and they got to get on this. And that, you know, it, it works. If these folks come over and you integrate them into Western society, you're not going to. You know, France has problems because France leaves them all in a slum. They're not integrated, and so they they get alienated. They get radicalized, and you you have these problems. If you bring these people in, you integrate them in your society, whatever that means, you know. Um, it's a win for us, for sure. And then when they do go home, they take some of these elements back, and it's a win again. What was your What was your uh, your impression of what you might run into, and how did that change? I, I probably expected a little more chaos in the camp. I probably expected um, a little less thank you, a little more impatience than I saw. I'll say so. I was I was by and large impressed, uh, but you know, again. We had one day where we had some folks, they were just really pushing the line, and we were really busy inside, so I was not letting more people in. And it's what I always tell the staff is, we're never too busy to smile. You guys never need to get upset about something. There's nothing that happens at this camp that you need to get upset about, because even if it's worth getting upset about, you can't do anything about it. I can, so let me be the one to handle that. So they'd come get me, and this guy was, he was Afghani, and I'm like, well, how, and he was, he was upset that he wasn't in the camp yet. I'm like, well, you'll be the first one of the next batch in, but it's going to be another 20 minutes. I want to get the place cleaned. You won't, I said, how long have you been on this journey? He goes, 34 days. So, so you think one more, 20 more minutes is going to kill you to stand here? And he kind of thought about it for a minute, kind of smiled and then sat down. So, so he understood English. Yeah, some, some of them understand English. And then we have guys, there's this guy, Yusuf, he's, uh, call him Joseph. He's Egyptian by birth, but he's been in Greece for 20 years, ex-Muslim. Um, and he'll stand up at the gate, and he is fantastic with them. I mean, he's just great. He works for SP, but he is just, you know, all fantastic with keeping the line happy. And, you know, they know the, for them, they just made it to Europe. That's the goal. So now they're at the start of, of the goal, that the end, of the end game, not the beginning of the journey that they started from Syria, Iran. So a lot of them are just happy. And again, being welcomed wholeheartedly by strangers, you know, that, that's, that's not something they're used to either. So it kind of throws them off their game a little bit anyway. So I, 
any particular moments stand out to you? Oh, there's a few. I say I am, I'm, I'm fairly business oriented, and my role there was to make that thing run smooth and, and, and smoother. And so we did that, but I, I made sure that at any time we had a couple of people out, and their only role was to just check on people. You know, see a group of guys go sit down, hey, how you doing? See if anyone speaks English, just see a family, can I, can I get you this? Can I, you know, let me kind of get you a blanket? We would keep art supplies in a little crate, and we'd take it out, and we'd, one day it was like a church show, so we had, they were doing volleyball, and they were uh, kicking soccer balls over here, and they were blowing bubbles, and we were coloring, and so we want to be intentional about that, because again, they've never had that, and this is their introduction to Christianity, and we want to make sure it's a good one, but it also gives us time when people are happy, and they're occupied, they're more likely to let their guard down and talk a little more intimately to you than they would if they're, you know, just got off the boat and they're soaking wet and they're wondering what's going to happen next. There was another one where a little baby came in and there was one of the volunteers as a midwife and she was dying to help somebody to, to deliver a baby there. So every time a baby came in, you'd hear in the walkies, oh, Danny, we got a, we got a cute little baby back here, up here. Well, this guy comes in and it's a group family, but the, the, the mom was there, but the dad was carrying it and he was like, oh, you want to hold the baby? Two days old, born in the woods in Turkey before they came across. You know, so that woman, the day before they came across, so that woman gave birth in the woods and had to get up the next day and walk down to the beach, get on that boat, cross with a brand new baby, and uh, and then you know come up that hill to us, and and so that that kind of sticks you. There was another one, and I I really don't know how this ended. He was a single dad. His wife and his oldest son had been pushed out of the boat by the smugglers, and and while he was trying to stop that, his bag got tossed overboard, and he managed to. And he got hit, but he managed to fall back, and he was carrying the baby. And he, the baby was eight months old, so he, or six months. Anyway, he, he fell back onto the boat, and the boat took off. So he has no way to get in touch with his wife. You know, they're Syrian. She's stuck in Turkey, wife and the oldest son. I think they have family somewhere that she can get to, but he didn't know what to do. So, I, you know, I, I got the story. I took him to the kitchen, because we always have hot water for formula. And... So while he's getting the formula ready, he just hands me the baby. I must be out of practice because my kids are, you know, seven and nine now, but I could not get that kid to stop crying. <laughs> I'm doing it, bringing every trick in the book. As soon as the bottle was in her mouth, done though. So she was good. So, and he finally had to go on without her. He waited for several hours and then he went on to the next camp. And so I, I, I'll never know how that, that resolved. So you saw several things where family was separated. I sent Marion a picture and she posted it. It was, um, they were Afghans. It was a family and it was, a. Uh, nine-year-old boy and the first thing he drew with the art supplies was a rubber raft with his family in it and then you know in Farsi he's got we we want peace we want to live peacefully was a rough translation of it so I took a picture and actually I spent some time talking to him and I introduced some of our other team to him um, and they were interested in talking and they're um, you know kind of swapping stories a little bit and again they had been about 30 days on this journey and uh, so I on a whim I was like hey can I take a picture uh, you know, I took a picture of him holding up, the, and his mom's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, let me get a picture of him. And I hand him my phone to somebody, and he just comes over, puts his arm around me, and he's nine, and that's my, my oldest boy is nine. So that one kind of sticks with you. Um, but I have no way of, you know, that, that's the family I'd like to kind of see what happens to him. And then there was another guy, like I said, I was telling you earlier, he gave me the, one of them gave me the big bear hug when I went to tell him, and that, that's another family that kind of bonded. I got to share a little bit about Christ and why I do things with them. And they, they, you know, they asked questions. They weren't just politely listening. And that's one that I'd like to be able to follow up with. But you know, how how you do that, I don't, I don't know. 
and what I thought was touching is a lot of times the refugees, um, they would give us clothes that they couldn't wear. Like, oh, well, we, we can't fit these. Would you, you know, would you like to give them to somebody else? And I thought that was, you know, here you are, and and that I just thought that was, that was neat. You know, you see some of that, some of that. Because yeah, they come up on shore with nothing, so it's very little, yeah, right? Yeah, very little. And they might have gotten some clothes somewhere else that don't fit. And so they'll give them to you. And a lot of times they would take off their wet clothes and ask you, well, can, you know, do you want these? Can I dry them here and you give them to somebody else? So the UN's official position is you can't reuse clothing or shoes. So what I decided to do was, and then all the other shifts took, uh, took the sun, we, we picked one spot that was the sunniest during the day and we just put the shoes there. And then they would dry, and if someone happened to clean them, so be it. But if, if a refugee happened to see a pair of shoes that were dry and left his wet ones in place, I didn't, I didn't give them. They just kind of made it happen on their own. But the clothes we did have to throw away. They're trying to figure out a way to wash them now. It's just there's not much facility for that there. Uh, you know, it's, it's always those little moments. Even when it gets hectic, I always tell people, nothing can't wait five minutes for you to talk to a family. Um, so... Uh, yeah, there's always those moments where you just kind of connect with someone. Because there'd be 1,000, 1,500 people come through on my shift in a day, and you know, I'm not going to talk to every one of them, and I'm not gonna, certainly not going to get a chance to have any you know, real conversations. Uh, but there were a few here and there I would like to see. One guy spent the night, and he spoke great English, and he was Syrian. He's from Aleppo. Um, and people thought he, some of the refugees even thought that he was part of us because he was helping a lot. And I bet him, I said, are you here with the family? He's like, no, no, I'm just by myself. And he has family, I think, in Finland. So he's going to go to Germany and maybe to Finland. I'm like, dude, won't you stay for a week? I'll pay you. I'll put you up in a hotel at night. Just translate. Help us out. And he thought about it for a while, but he, he went on. That he would have been a good one there. Because in some places that happens. They're, they're, they're all afraid that, that Germany will shut down. And so that, that's the, you know, I mean, that's the holy girl right now for most of them is going to Germany. Some, some people have wondered why the, they aren't staying back to fight no, for their country. What do you say to that? These are zealots the like that you have never seen before. I mean, these people are scared to death. Would you take your whole family, leave everything you've ever known, to go to some place that you know is not really keen on you getting... They know that Europe doesn't want them. But a bunch of pissed-off middle-aged white people is nothing compared to people who are killing them back where they live. So why don't they stay and fight? Who's going to lead them? If there were someone, I believe they would fight. If there were someone that, but you got to understand, they're not just fighting Daesh or, or ISIS. They're also fighting the Syrian government. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these families, they're not directly fighting either one, but they're fighting the Syrians are here and Daesh is here, and what do you do? So yeah, if there were a leader, if there were a real leader over there, I think they would fight. But there is not, a, there is there is an absence of leadership in 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 Syria. And in that void, that's, that's why ISIS got so powerful. In that void, they, they're able to come in and do it. So yeah, if there were a real leader or if there were a real world, pow- world power, but, you know, it's certainly not Assad. It's certainly not Putin. We, we know it's not Obama. Who is it? There's not one. You know, the French are upset right now, but that won't last that long. They'll be just like the Jordanians. They'll, they'll go bomb some stuff that they already had evacuated because they knew it was coming. And they'll bomb a few more things, and then they'll just kind of fade back to where they were. Do, so. they, do the Syrians want us to, to do something about it? Well, see, that's a tough one. I talked to some, and you know, some of them wonder why the West has abandoned Syria. Some of them just don't even think that way. Um, 
Some of them want help. Some of they want the war to end. They want to go home. The Syrians to a man, to a woman, they want to go home. They want the war to end. And they expect it to end, but now, in the beginning, they thought it would end a lot sooner, and so now they're realizing my only choice. That you, you see kids that are hardened to death right now because they've seen so many friends and family and neighbors die right in front of their eyes. I mean, some of them have been gotten out of, you know, every now and then we'll have people coming through the camp where they have Syrians, especially because they tend to get here quickly. Well, they'll have still have shrapnel wounds, you know, that are healing from bombs and things. So, um, I just, there's no coordination. You know, they fought and they can't fight anymore. And now it's just a matter of we die. Either the Syrian, Syrian army kills us or ISIS kills us or we're collateral damage in the bombing attacks. So, if there were a true leader, then I think they would, these men, you know, a lot of these men I've spoken to, they're gentle, they're quiet, they're very respectful. A lot of them have killed. They've had to. But without a leader and without weapons, how, I mean, ISIS is very well organized. How are they, you know, how are they going to, how are they going to fight that? Plus, ISIS can just keep bringing people in from other countries. You know, most of their fighters are foreign bred. They're not Syrians. So, you know. Plus you have Assad on the other side. Yeah, and you have Assad on the other side. And now you got Putin who's just bat crap crazy. You know? You know? I don't I don't I don't know what the answer is, but it's not any of these Ringling brothers that we've got leading it. What do you think when you come back now that you've been back a few days and you see what's going on in our media and on Facebook, what what's your uh, take on what you're saying I, here? My wife posted a picture, like I said, of that little boy on uh the Jen Hatmaker's blog, maybe your Facebook page, and it's got like 750 likes, but there's just some horrible stuff going to being said both ways. And uh, for the record, if you are going to argue one way or the other, do not use the Sarnoff brothers for or against without Googling the fact that they had been here for 14 years and they're Chechen, not Sy- recent Syrian refugees. For the record, they are not Syrian refugees, they were Chechen, and their families had been here for maybe 14 years. So get your facts right first. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of naivete I see on the Christian side of saying you know we have to help these people and I fall in that camp I guess but there are legitimate concerns about flooding the West with Muslims one because they're not respecters of Western democracy and um, and there's their pretense hiding terrorists no one wants terrorists so this is a serious conversation that needs to happen and there needs to be a plan to deal with it. How do we provide the maximum amount of security to our countries but not turn our backs on those that really need it? And that's that's where the end that's where the that's where the friction's gonna come. So to say, oh, biblically speaking, we have to accept these people. Well yeah, we do, but you do it smartly and you know, there needs to be a serious discussion about how that's done because these are legitimate concerns about if too many Muslims in one country can overwhelm and suddenly you go from a Western democracy to a Muslim theocracy. It's not inconceivable. It's probably not gonna happen, but it's not inconceivable. So that's where, you know, those folks who are complaining about that need to be willing to mobilize to integrate these folks because they are gonna come at some point in time. As again, middle aged white people pissed off at Starbucks does not scare these people. They've seen hell. They've seen evil. And it's not suburban U.S. or European people. They're not evil. They've cut, they're fleeing evil. So you, you can't stop this tide. You can put walls up, and those people will be dying trying to get across those walls and in because they're getting killed. So on the U.S., you know, or in Europe, you have to realize they're coming. 
we need to have that discussion on the best way to handle that. How do we integrate them? Do we indoctrinate them? Do we, when they're coming in, do they need to take citizenship classes? Do they need to take democracy? You know, less, you're not, you don't have to give up your religion. You don't have to give up your culture to a certain extent, but you have to understand the culture you're coming into and how things work here. And I don't think that's been done before, certainly not in France. Maybe we need to look at some things like that. But this is where the Western church needs to rise up, step up to the plate, and invite these people into their homes and into their communities. Most of them are interested in Christ. They will listen. You will see conversions. You will see people adopt the Western ideals. I was at the Acropolis. Uh, Samuel is studying Greek civilization. So my marching orders were a picture of the Parthenon in a book. <laughs> so I'm at the Acropolis the day before we come home. And, and when you're going to pay your ticket to a very sour-faced lady, by the way, uh, did not seem like she wanted to be there. There's a sign that says, the Acropolis, the Agora, and the, the immediate environments, they form the heart of ancient Athens, where our European ideals of civilization, of democracy, of science, of literature, of art were formed. These people don't have that basis. So when they come over, they need to, you know, to have that, that Acropolis class. They need to be taught a little bit about what our ideals are and why, you know, why they are that way. And I think you will see a much better response from them and to them. Um, because by and large, I will tell you this, these people I met in that camp are no different than you know everybody here. They have families that they love and they want to prosper and they want to protect. And that's no different from anybody here. You know, and on the other side, you, you know, I see some of my friends that are like, oh, we just shouting down the folks who are shouting down the refugees. And you can't do that either because that's a, they have legitimate points. But on the other hand, if we are in a position to help and we don't, what does that say about us? What, you know? So both sides have some merit. It's not an either or. But what I am saying from personal experience now that I've been there, this is not watching Greta Van Susteren, this is not listening to you know the Huffington Post, this is not any of that. When you meet these people and you sit down with these people and you share a glass of tea with them or you watch their children color or something you provided, they're not stopping to come. They will continue to come because to stay is to die and to come is to live. And that period. And we're having three and four and five drowning deaths a day on that island. Every day. Boats are capsizing. People are, that doesn't count the people that are raped, killed, robbed in Turkey. Have a guy with his hand half cut off where they tried the, the, they were trying to rob him as he was getting on the boat. Some of the smugglers. So he puts his hand up to block the knife off, but they still grabbed his bag and he got pushed in and he came across as, you know, they did the best they could to stop his hand. They're willing to risk that with their families because to stay is to die. So we had two little boys my last night there. They were crying. Just tears are just kind of running. They're just kind of staring ahead, and they're and I didn't I didn't get the whole of the story because um, their dad didn't speak a lot of English. But their mother had died on the crossing. I don't know if she fell out and drowned. I don't know what happened. We've had people get suffocated on those boats before because they get caught under them and it's night time and people don't realize they're there. And we, there was a lady a couple of days that we got there. She drowned in an inch of water. So I don't know what happened, but the wife died. So these people are willing to risk death to escape death. So we're not keeping them out. The argument, the argument has to switch from should we keep them out or should we welcome them to how do we best integrate them into Western society. And that's the only argument that you can have because they're coming and you're not going to stop it until the bombs stop falling in Syria, Iran, and Afghanistan. I mean Iraq. And that, that doesn't look war. like it's going to happen anytime soon. Till the wars are over. Till the wars are over. Now what about all the other countries that are kind of piggybacking on this? Now, now I, I, yeah, now that's a different issue. Those guys... I think maybe we could do some leaning on some countries to close some land borders and have some better maritime patrols. But existing European law was not written with hundreds of thousands of refugees in mind. You know, so there's two things at play. There's the maritime law that's pretty well established that 
if your vessel is in distress, they have the country that picks you up has to give you some sort of safe harbor. And then the Dublin Act Pact Convention uh, is the one that dictates how much time you get in Europe if you come over. So anybody that comes as a refugee can get that 30 days before they can start deportation proceedings. So European law needs to change in that respect, and I think some people understand that. Because um, I, I was interviewed by some French, uh, two French journalists and a, a, an American journalist, they're all based in France, for a Canadian production. Well, I was there, and um, it's, it's all always find you. Yeah. <laughs> no, Canadians, they just have the look, I guess. Hey, he's friendly to Canadians, and um, you know they're they're a little worried about Western civilization and democracy, but um, they they've realized, you know, they think that France is finally getting its head around the fact that we're going to have to get Europe to to change the way we we address this, to change the way we act on this. Um, because if you don't, they're just going to keep coming. So, I, but I certainly think, you know, if you've got folks coming from Gabon, from Gambia, I haven't heard of many wars going on there. So that that's you need to stem that. Now, I would say that was maybe twenty percent of our overall flow. Maybe twenty, maybe less. Some days less, but it's going to climb up higher. That's the question people have here: is is verifying who the Syrians are, who the safe ones are, and who the ISIS candidates. That's where I think. If this attack, if it does anything other than spur more argument and maybe close some borders, would be to try to enhance the security. That you know, try to find out who are we letting in in our country and who in Europe and who we aren't. And I, I certainly, from what I've seen, think that that can be done better. But you have people who have no record; they have no ties that we know of. So Western intelligence has to get better, without a doubt. They've got to get dirtier than they are right now. They've got to play with people they might not want to play with. They have got to get better about finding out who and what. And it's doable. It's just, it's going to take a unified political willpower. Um, and now you have, like these Dutch people I was with, um, the night the French attacks happened, we were at the lighthouse. And we got text, they got some texts like, oh, we're praying for you guys. And we're like, what's going on? So we checked the news and we'd we see this thing in Paris. And we're like, crap, that could be a game changer for us. Um, it could mean we're going to have 500,000 people coming across the water tomorrow. It could mean, you know, this is done for a little while while they figure out another way to get in. And um, But sure enough, that night, one of the Dutch politicians who was fairly vocal about being anti-government really stepped it up about closing the borders. You know, and he, and he wasn't alone now. And I think you're starting to see even some of the... Because typically the guys on the right are more that we're going to close it, and the guys on the left are more of we're, we're not going to talk about it or we're going to keep it open. And I think you're starting to see maybe in the U.S. and certainly in some of these other countries that those guys that are not so far on the left are starting to lean to the right on this. And I, you know, it's a it's a perfectly natural reaction. And you know, you want to protect your country. That's your that's your job when you're a politician. You want to protect your country and your families. And so I think it's a perfectly natural reaction. I don't know that it's long-term the right solution but I certainly could see especially with winter coming on and they expect the numbers to drop that you you see a slowdown in immigrating people out of Greece and further in the, into Europe while they get their hands their head around the new the new realities and try to come up with a better because we're just reacting right now the UN was not ready for this Europe was not ready for this they're still not ready for it so we're just reacting by the time Europe and UN figures out what they want to do the, the situation has changed some so I, I could see maybe a, a short-term pause to letting them out of, out of Greece and developing better strategies for, for handling that, but a long-term 
you know, you got to stop the war. And that's not me. That's every refugee I spoke to. And I, I do, looking at it, I realize it's not stopping. And we have an enormous task ahead of us as, as Christians, as Western nations. Because this is not Greece's problem. This isn't just Europe's problem. It's the world's problem. It is the U.S.'s problem. Because uh, just play, say the worst does happen. Say this, this was a coordinated effort and some European countries fall. Well, now the European Union's over. Where does the U.S. stand? Now we're alone. Right? I mean, worst case scenario, well, we got Canada, but, you know, by and large... You've got friends there. I've got friends we there. That. I've got friends there. I'd, I'd be okay in Canada, but you guys, you guys are in trouble. You know, what happens? You know, you, you have prominent European politicians, you know, decrying that this could be the end of the European Union. This could be what cracks it wide open. So... You know, it's it's the world's problem, and it's, it's humanity's problem. How can you turn your back on on, on this just because? Yeah, there, I, I know I saw people game in the system. I know I met them. I talked to them. I can point some of them to you. But how do you then go to this family who's had deaths on the way, who who had to leave their house, you know, because their house is on fire? How do you how do you not help those people? Well, then you can't relocate a whole country. You can't. No, you can't. That doesn't work. Where are you going to relocate them to? They're already in the desert. There's no, it's not like there's any less desirable. Typically, you relocate people, and this has been my experience. When a disaster happens, you relocate large amounts of people in a less desirable location because land is cheaper. It's a freaking desert in, in Syria. Where, where's the less desirable location? Find it for me, and then we, you know you can talk. There isn't one, and this whole thing. And, and I'm afraid that this individual won't be the one to bring that up. This whole thing. If we need to help them where they are, well, where they are is in Eastern Europe. You can't go to Syria and help them because you'll die just like they're going to. You can't help someone who who is who doesn't want to be helped in Syria because they're going to die. You can't do it. What would you say to, in in some ways you've already said it, but um, to Christians that are afraid of who might be coming here? And well, you should be. I think that's a that's a perfectly rational thing. But here's here's what separates me. I've realized from a lot of people in a lot you know. I don't let my fear dictate my actions. It's good to have fear. Fear keeps us alive. But when you let your fear dictate your actions, that's a bad position to be in. So realize that, yes, there, there will be some people that are taking advantage of this for heinous purposes, for evil purposes, to explode, to kill, to whatever. But the majority of them that are taking advantage of it are just looking for a better life. They want to get a better job. They want to get into Europe. They want to get that EU citizenship so they can bring their families over. Same problem we have coming up from the south of you know, our border. So the majority of it is that, and the people taking advantage of it is that. But, you know, understand that these people aren't stupid. They're not looking to come to, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, and blow anything up. It's not a statement there. There's, there's targeting, you know, they don't do this randomly. They're targeted at certain places, and they will continue to target those certain places. So for the, the vast majority of America and Europe, you don't have anything to worry about. So... Fear it, yes. Be part of that conversation. You know, if your state is one that's going to take refugees, be part of that. How are we going to take them? Are we just going to bring them in and dump them off? Like, work with how that process is going to look like. How are we going to How are we going to integrate them? Too many times we just let them come in. They assume they're going to integrate. You need to get your churches involved so that get in contact with these agencies that are going to be bringing them in. How can we help? How can we help integrate them? You know, don't let them all go to the Billy Joe Bob's apartments and now it's suddenly, you know, Damascus West get one guy here you know bring him into your communities it's an opportunity and you have to look at it that way so how can people help 
they've heard this and they want to help. Um, there's a big need for Christian volunteers coordinated through Christian groups that are, that are working over there. Um, there will be a big need if we do start taking refugees on churches to come in and, and walk beside these refugee agencies, many of which are already Christian, and invite these people into their homes, into their churches. You know, it's not good enough to go set up an apartment. That's great. We need to invite these people in our homes. We need to be telling them about Christ. And they'll listen. The majority of these people will listen. Because Islam is a nation without, is a religion without love. Everyone that I have dealt with with it, you know, it says the same thing. These people are not used to strangers welcoming them. Especially Christians. They've heard horrible things about Christians, just like we've heard horrible things about Muslims. So when you change that dynamic around, you've earned the right to talk to them and they will listen to you. And so we need to make sure they get integrated in our communities. And then um, when the war ends and they want to go home, then we need to support that and equip them to do that. Can they do anything with your organization, Conscience International? We'll be taking teams over. Uh, we probably are not going to ship a lot of supplies just because logistically it's really, really hard to get stuff over there. But we'll be looking to bring volunteer teams. But it's probably a difficult trip, mainly because it's got to be a minimum of two weeks. Anything less than that, it's going to be really, with all the travel time involved in the training, um, and prayer is always a huge thing. Um, the more prayer, the better, certainly. Especially in this case, you know, pray for the refugees, pray for our enemies. Some of these people will come to know Christ, but it's going to take somebody opening their mouth and, and being there to show them Christ for that to happen. Can they donate online anywhere? They can donate at conscienceinternational.org. They can donate, I'm sure, to other groups also. Um, Samaritan's Purse has a big presence over there. Uh, YWAM. A lot of YWAMers were there, a lot from Operation Mobilization, Operation Mercy, various and sundry churches. So, Did your center have a specific name? Is there a way for people to find out about it online? Uh, not currently. Um, articles will be going up on the CI webpage, and there's a few things on the Conscience International Facebook page, but we're a little bit technologically behind the times. But uh, stuff will be going up on there, and it, it is talking about all those things happened at our where we were working at Scarlet Sicamina. Thanks for what you did. Oh, I enjoyed. It. I had a lot of fun. I met a lot of good people, met a lot of refugees. I tried to call it a bed and breakfast without beds or so much in the way of breakfast. But there are guests, and we want to welcome them into our home. Um, you can only get there by right. Yeah, you only get there. That's right. It is. It's it's very exclusive. Very exclusive. It's like a it's a boat up. You know, definitely. It's like. Uh, it's, in, in, and I heard you had trouble finding good coffee. Whoo! With all due respect to my Greek friends, y'all do not know how to make a good cup of coffee. The cappuccinos are a little bit better. I never really tried an espresso, but yeah, coffee not their thing. You'll be taking some over with you. Oh, next time definitely. I already <laughs> talked about it. Like another guy that kind of hosted us around in Athens on our way home. He's from. I guess he lived in the Gainesville area. He went to Greater Atlanta Christian. He lived in Norcross as a kid, and he goes, "If you bring, if you do come back and bring some good coffee, yet, why don't you bring some extra and leave it here for us?" Because <laughs> it's it's hard to even find good good coffee to, to even cook yourself, make yourself there. So, but the uh, the the food was great, and I'm a big fan of feta cheese anyway. And so the, you get a feta salad everywhere for like f four to five euros, and you know, there's no lettuce. Like you get a Greek salad in the U.S. And it's got lettuce in it, right? Yeah. Not there. The lettuce is not not part. You got it's tomatoes and it's olives and it's onions and bell peppers and cucumbers and olive oil and a little vinegar. 
and a slab of feta that if I bought feta that quality that size in the US it'd be ten dollars. It was so good. And for breakfast, you know, you get just cheese and olives and uh, I really really and then, I don't know how you there's an argument, no one won. How do you say gyro, euro, gyro? Well this guy just calls them pitas. And uh, you know, in the mall here in the US are probably five, six, seven bucks for a very average one. You get a really good one there for two and a half euros, so not even three bucks. So yeah, the food was great. Coffee on the other hand, <laughs> not so much. What kind of volunteers do you need? We just need people who are gonna be comfortable doing anything. Because one day you might be the one handing out the tickets, which means you have to have a level head because I let you, the leaders let you take a good bit of stress there of like, oh, I, I lost my ticket. No, you really didn't. You just snuck in with that one. Or, you know, my friends are on this bus. So there's just a lot of problem solving that's happened there. Another day you might be the one at the line greeting them. Another day you might be at the bus loading them up. Another day you might be in the clothing tent. One day you just might be walking around checking on people. Like, hey, how are you doing? You know, where are you from? All that stuff. So just flexibility. We don't need any particular skill set uh, over another one because everything is equally valuable. You need to have a servant's heart because sometimes it's tough, you know. And, you know, I can see sometimes when I say, all right, it's time to scrub the commodes, that their hearts weren't really into it, but they did it anyway because they knew it was serving the guests because my first day there, by about three in the afternoon, I stopped telling people we had water closets because it was embarrassing. <laughs> so there, sometimes it's not fun stuff, but it's stuff that needs to happen, and it's, it's how you serve people. And again, these people have not seen much in the way of friendship. From strangers. I mean, they've been beaten and kicked through and taken advantage. 125 euros for a life jacket. 125. Just remember that price. You know, they've gotten taken advantage every step of the way. So to see that safe haven, that first safe haven for many of them, since they, you know, for months, years, really, uh, and, and to have Christians who they don't know that much about or they think poorly of be the ones doing it, it's an incredible experience to, to go through and you never know what that's going to do for those folks. It makes such a difference to hear from people who have first-hand experience. What did you hear? Well, here are some things that stood out to me in this interview. The refugees see Paris as the heart, Germany as the wallet, and the UK as the head of Europe. ISIS doesn't really want the refugees leaving because they have imported information that could help the West track ISIS and fight them. ISIS attacks may be intended to create fear and make countries close their borders after all. Most Syrians want to go back once the war is over. At least they do at this point before settling down in Europe. I also appreciated Jeremy's repeated, heartfelt emphasis on the opportunity to show the love of Christ to people who have never seen it or experienced it. We are indeed facing an historic challenge. What will we do? Are there reasons to be afraid? Yes. Are there reasons to be cautious? Absolutely. But are there also reasons to act despite our fear? To be courageous and engage those that may be coming to our communities? Yes, again. The big risk we face is in dividing ourselves and looking with suspicion upon each other. Compassionate people are on both sides of this issue those that feel we should welcome the refugees, then get busy figuring out how to best do that. For those that just aren't there yet, you have a job to do as well. You can pray. None of us knows how this chapter in human history will end. So let's act on what we do know 
The world is hurting. Families are suffering. Evil is real. But God is also working. This crisis is bringing out the best in people just as Jeremy described the wonderful volunteers serving those coming on shore. And we know that what some have meant for evil, God can indeed turn to good. To learn more about what's happening on the island of Lesbos, visit my website at jeffreams.com. I've uploaded a fact sheet there on immigration to the island as well as notes and audio from this interview. If you would like to help, visit conscienceinternational.org. There you will find information on how Conscience International is helping refugees as well as places they are involved in around the world. CI is doing great work. Check them out. That's it for this episode of Mission Life. Thanks for listening and be blessed as you seek to live on mission with Jesus every day.